in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Dustin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Mr. Chad Robinson. How are you doing, sir? Haven't been a co-host in a while, Russell, so this is fun. Take it away. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm excited, though, because we have a returning guest, too. We have He, he hasn't been on in a while, so uh, if you remember the Miracle episode from way long ago... Mr. Keaton Lindbergh, this time from Lancaster, PA. How you doing, sir? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And uh, let's just, to get things going again, so Keaton, you grew up in Pittsburgh. You're a Pittsburgher. And Chad, yeah. you and I have lived in Pittsburgh for a long time. So uh, this is a Pittsburgh all-across-the-board podcast, kind of. What is a favorite movie showing off Pittsburgh that you that you have enjoyed, Keaton? I think probably my my personal favorite to show off the city is Jack Reacher. It just has so many like great skyline views and the movie opens up looking over the river at PNC Park. I just as a Pittsburgher, that's a really fun one to watch. Yeah, the helicopter scene was filmed right outside of my office building. We were watching them fly by. That was really cool. Chad, what about you? What's a Pittsburgh movie that you like? So I'm going in the opposite direction. I'm going to go worst example of Pittsburgh, and that's Land of the Dead. Because Pittsburgh is such a great setting for like a last stand against a zombie tide with the rivers and blowing up the bridge. But it's obviously Toronto and a little (laughs) bit of Ontario, not a speck of Pittsburgh. And Romero's from Pittsburgh, so I lament that quite a bit. Film it in Pittsburgh, please. Yeah, well that... uh... That was a downer. So, uh, <laughs> so my guilty pleasure, because I don't know that this is a great movie, but I love the movie Sudden Death from 1995. Nice. It's Jean-Claude Van Damme and uh, the Mellon Arena is taken over by uh, uh, terrorists, and they're going to detonate a bomb in the building, and he fights on top of the dome while it's opening uh, on the retractable dome, and uh, there's some good city shots and stuff in there. In terms of being just a postcard to the city, uh, she's out of your league from 2010. Uh, is very flattering and very makes the city look very good. But uh, I, my my uh, guilty pleasure pick is ni- 1995, Sudden Death. So what's the last movie you saw, Keaton? I think the last movie, just the last week we watched Yesterday on Netflix. I don't know if, if you've seen oh, that one. I need a little bit of contact. What is Yesterday? It's uh, these young parents, and they have three young kids, and... I think the kids and some of their friends at school convinced the parents to do this new yesterday concept, which oh, for yeah. 24 hours, the parents will say yes to anything the kids want to do. So this is kind of like Jim Carrey's Yes Man. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 pretty funny. Sounds good. Chad, what about you? Last movie. 
We're going to be covering a John Hughes movie today, so I went with Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which is very interesting from, I saw it last, I don't know, 15 years ago. I have a completely different impression of Ferris now. Like you're kind of, oh, really? you're kind of a selfish jerk, man. Like, he was so cool when I was younger. Yeah, yeah. And, uh... Mine, I, I've been, I'm, this is probably going to happen more over the next couple of years, but I, I watched a Disney movie with my little man and we watched Lightyear. So the 2022 new one with Chris Evans doing the voice work and not Tim Allen. So um, mm. it wasn't reviewed well, but I had an okay time. Chad, what's our movie today? Today we are doing, finally, The Breakfast Club. It's the most important meal of the day. And I would, I would join a club dedicated to it. It's my favorite of the three meals. So this movie stars Emilio Escavez, Paul Gleason, Anthony Michael Hall, Judd Nelson, Molly Ringwald, and Ali Sheedy. It comes out in 1985, the year when I am born. So budget is $1 million, and it grosses a heck of a lot more. It's, it gets $45.8 million domestically alone. So uh, they made their money back in spades on this one. Uh, they uh, place in the box office was number 13 on the year, and the movie ahead of it was Mask. And that's not the 19... 19- 90s Jim Carrey mask. This is just <laughs> mask. And it comes behind, sorry, it comes in ahead of Pale Rider at 14. Uh, Back to the Future is the number one movie of 1985. Astonishing we've not covered that yet. We need to fix that. And IMDb gives it a rating of 7.8. And Rotten Tomatoes, the critics give Breakfast Love an 89% and the audience score a 92%. And not a lot of, uh, shockingly, not a lot of accolades for this one, but the MTV Movie Awards gave it the Silver Bucket of Excellence Award in 2005. So, Keaton, had you seen Breakfast Club before? What was your first time seeing it? What was it like coming back to you today? Yeah, I had seen it before probably uh, probably only once, like seven or eight years ago, actually. You know, everybody talks about The Breakfast Club. I was like, I, this is probably a movie I should see to have that that knowledge (laughs) and uh yeah it was so i didn't really remember the details of it this time going into it but i kind of remembered it being a a slower movie with some some really funny moments and i think i enjoyed it more this time probably than i did the first time i I thought it was really really good and i found a lot of really funny one-liners in this this time around so that's interesting. As you have aged and gotten farther from your teenage years, you're appreciating it more then. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Chad, what about you? This, As Keaton said, this is just one of those movies people tell you you got to see. Had you seen this one before? Right, yeah, of, of course. It was, they, they would run John Hughes Marathons, you know, 16 Candles, Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller. They would run these huge marathons growing up, and so I caught this on TV several times. It's It's been a while since I'd revisited it. I'll be honest, I kind of am having the opposite reaction, and maybe this is just a John Hughes thing. Maybe I need to revisit 16 Candles, but I'm finding myself further distanced from this type of movie and enjoying it a little less than when I it was relevant to my life as a teenager or someone struggling with these things it's still enjoyable uh, but i think there are some things that haven't particularly aged well okay yeah that's interesting so we and i am going to 
take a different approach from different perspectives on this one. I did not get to this one probably until high school, around 10th grade or so. So I would have been around, I don't know, 16 or something like that myself. And um, I, I definitely got the TV version, so a little bit censored. Uh, and I was hooked. I, I, I didn't. I just came in the middle of the movie, and I got a hold of it again soon thereafter. And I, this is kind of the movie that you like. Your parents can like. It's like I don't think I should be watching this around my folks right now, kind of thing. So I had to like change the channel initially and come back to it. It's like leave the room, <laughs> and, and so I could finish it, because uh, definitely some of these subjects are incredibly honest. Like the, the, this is remarkably authentic in terms of how high schoolers do speak and uh and so i i I, it was it drew me in right away and every time i've come back to it i like it more and more it's one of those things where initially you feel you might identify with one character in specific but just as the theme of the movie goes over time i've come to appreciate each one of these characters uh more and more and you know i don't want to skip too far ahead but this movie is like about everybody feels like they don't fit in and this is one of those things where you're as different as everybody feels like, you might have more in common with people than you initially think if you can slow down and get an, able, an ability to figure that out. So that's a cool thing. And I wish, uh, not that we all want to go to detention, but the, it's kind of one of those things where I found myself going like, wouldn't it be interesting if you did get in a situation where like you get five people who are totally different who you never talk to? And so um, it's one of these movies that I have found myself like chewing on sitting there going like, that's a really compelling notion of we're more alike and we can relate and learn from each other more than you would think. So, yeah, I, I have loved this one. It's a classic for me. I've returned to it multiple times throughout college. I don't go too long without seeing it. It is very high up there. I actually kind of call it a drama more than I call it a comedy. And I appreciate it more as such, uh, even though there are comedic moments in it. But I think good comedies have drama, and good drama has comedy in it, too. Yeah, I agree. So we will be spoiling Breakfast Club thoroughly when we come back after this. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. All right, this is your final warning, and there will be spoilers that lie ahead. Now, Chad, for those of us who haven't seen Breakfast Club since 1985, would you refresh our memories? Five teens with nothing in common, a brain, an athlete, a basket case, a princess, and a criminal are all sentenced to Saturday detention. Their vice principal instructs them not to talk or move or even sleep for the next nine hours, assigning them a thousand-word essay describing who they think they are. The criminal of the group, John Bender, ignores the rules and lashes out at vice principal Vernon. The others are initially annoyed by John, but begin sympathizing with him after learning of his abuses at home. 
Claire, Brian, Andrew, and Allison all share their own struggles within their stereotypes and agree to escape the library to retrieve John's marijuana. John sacrifices himself in order to prevent the others from getting caught, and the students begin to bond with each other. Claire, the princess, gives Allison the basket case a makeover, which causes Andrew the athlete to fall for her. Claire kisses John and commissions Brian the Brain to write a single paper on behalf of all the detainees for Vice Principal Vernon. Brian writes the paper, and the students leave without permission. Vernon comes back to an empty room and reads the short essay rejecting the request to define themselves. The defiant letter is signed by the newly commissioned Breakfast Club. Well done, sir. So, Keaton, you're assigned a... Uh, essay and I don't know you're 16 years old what would it be like I, I couldn't do it it wouldn't be very good yeah in this situation I think that uh the Vernon's comment about it's not just a thousand of the same word or or something along those lines that probably would have been my type of essay <laughs> I think that I would have just really lashed into the teacher who probably not the one monitoring me but who put me there uh, I probably would have been like more driving it to like uh, I will be doing better than Mrs. Turner at this point, and I will make sure to make her feel very bad for putting me in this place, or you know, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. So I I, I would uh, I would probably pepper in lots of insults and. You had a history of being antagonistic to anyone that attempted to discipline you, so yeah, I I totally see that. Yeah, I, I don't think it would actually be about me in the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At the end of your paper, why don't you have some introspection and work on yourself? Yeah, and this would not go well for you, as it never did. I don't think you get graded on this paper, so you you, you have carte blanche. You do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, you I got all day to write it. <laughs> I would have just written the paper. It's it's like three or four pages. I would have just written it quickly and been nah. Done. I would have gone past. I would have gone past. I got I got eight hours in here, man. I can you know. I would be like, hey, man, you're gonna need to give me some more pages and some more pencils. I got some stuff to say. I never <laughs> got a Saturday detention. I barely got detention <sighs> at all. But eight out. It was it was nine hours actually. That's extreme. I've done it. I've done it. It's it does suck. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you go through you go through lunch detentions and after school detentions, and then 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 you get to the Saturday detentions. And I got we also had something called ALC. Um, I promise you, I'm not a terrible kid. I don't know how I, all those <laughs> things happened to me, but um, I do. I was there. <laughs> um, the worst I think is ALC, where they put you in like alternative learning center, and then like you don't go to classes. You sit in a room with like other people who are definitely going to prison, and <laughs> and and they're all like John Bender, and you're like, and that's the moment you sit there and go like, this system is screwed up. I do not belong in here. <laughs> well, you wound and, up. And you don't, in those places, because you had pretty much the John Bender reaction to Principal Vernon. It's like, do you want another one? Yes. I have done that. I have done that. I have done that very thing. But yeah, it, it um, <laughs> I wasn't going to tell that story, but you make, you'll make me later, probably. Uh, yeah, they, they, they just have you sit there and you, you have your books, but you didn't go to class to learn or whatever. And it's just one of those things where you're sitting there going like, I guess I'm kind of getting through okay, but then what are the teachers here for at this point? So um, I don't know how that's supposed to help anybody. You should have to go to more school, not sit in a little room while, uh, you know, and 
how are you supposed to get caught back up with your classes? That was the most strange one to me. Uh, and I still think picking up trash on the side of the road or something like, uh, you know, that kind of punishment, like community service, that's, that's, that's better. Do that. <laughs> Serve some old people some soup. Make, make some mittens for homeless people. I mean, do that. That's better discipline. I feel like for someone that loves this movie, you failed to bond with the obvious criminals that you were surrounded with. So, so I know what just happened. Um, You're like, wouldn't it be so interesting? We have an architect and criminals. Yeah, yeah. I fancied myself as thinking of myself as an Ali Sheedy, but in those moments, you sit there going like, "Well, I'm a, I'm an Anthony Michael Hall." <laughs> so I, I was definitely Brian. I'm watching myself. I'm like, oh, I'm the awkward kid, and this sucks. Oh, that, that's what I was saying. I, I would, yeah. You, you you think of yourself as being like Allison, but then you go and then you're like, it's like, oh no, I'm I'm Brian. Yeah. <laughs> um, so something sad happens as we grow up. I suppose it just it still happens to everybody. I mean, uh, it, around like age eleven to thirteen, like we develop quote unquote identities, and they're like the choice of clothing, the hobbies, the simple things like the music we love, the income level of your parents, y- your race, and all these things become really strong things that set these identities in air quotes, and then like other people view you as that, and you get this label applied to you that you didn't necessarily ask for. And it's just such a sad human thing that we do where we have to put people in boxes and categorize people. And this is just what happens, but those labels are rooted in high school. Like, you're at the peak of this. And so here we have more in common with, like, those around us than we think, as I mentioned earlier. And it's just, it's, like, really cool to see how this movie starts to unpack that. And I don't think you can do that in real life without being in a captive audience. I think it's a really creative idea, like, that they are in detention not monitored. Again, all the detentions that I had certainly had teachers in them, and they did not leave the room for any amount of time. And so uh, it's a really interesting concept of what would what would it take to get these people to talk to each other? It's pretty hard to come up with something like that. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I, I still don't... I picture one particular kind of snobbish girl that was never, ever nice to me. And I picture her as kind of the Claire role in this movie and if i had attempted to talk to her in this room i would have just gotten a shut up don't talk to me and that would have been it so it it is fascinating here the dialogue's so well written it it does feel like it's coming from teenagers instead of adults speaking through a teenage mouth yeah keaton do you find yourself like identifying with one or two of them or is it just this is an interesting spectacle to watch yeah, I mean, I wouldn't really, yeah, identify myself with any of them individually. I like, I don't think I, in high school, necessarily fit any of those roles. I wasn't really like the jock or the nerd or the. I wasn't really getting into trouble much. Like, I was kind of somewhere in between, maybe a mix of these, these people. But yeah, just yeah, like you said, just kind of the the variety of seeing how they're all different. And, they're each coming from a different different background, but they don't know that about each other, and they're already have these preconceived ideas about each other. And that definitely, like in in my high school, I'm sure that was going on because you don't really get to know everybody, and you just see them in the hall as whatever people have them labeled as. So it was definitely cool to to watch it unfold like this. And I heard a similar um, reference to to your point about it being a, a captive audience probably the only way to have this kind of density of of different 
personalities. I heard it referenced similar to an elevator at something like a courthouse where you, that's probably one of the only other places where you're putting all these different types of people into one room as a captive audience. And that came, that thought came up to me a couple of times with this. That's an interesting point about school size and just putting people into stereotypes. We went to a school, our graduating class was 222 people. We knew everyone, like you're just interacting with them. So there was less, I mean, there were, there were clicks, but I don't think, Russell, maybe, maybe correct me here, but I don't think I ever just said, oh, goth. Like I, I had a, I had more information. Well, you, they were in a goth clique, but it wasn't just so much stereotypes. So maybe school size and class size affects that too. I don't know. I, I, to some of your time, Mike Keaton, I felt like there were cliques, but like I floated between some of them. Like I had friends who were definitely, they were goth kids. Like I had friends who were like, they were in the band. That was their thing. I had friends who were super smart and like, and they did each kind of have their own little spheres. And I didn't necessarily fit cleanly into any package, but I had a collection of really close friends who don't fit those labels as much. And then I had an, like, another ring of like secondary friends that are good friends that are definitely fit these packages, and I just kind of float around. And it has to do with what classes you are, with who you are, with where, and stuff like that. So I don't know whether that's called like just being ambidextrous enough to be able to malleable or just um, it's one of those things where uh, it's not always as clear cut and dry as this but certainly sometimes it does feel as clear cut and dry as this yeah well our our friendship group was a little unique i think to some extent we got the leftovers which was great because the leftovers were great people but you're right they didn't necessarily you'd find that bridge middle group it's like the perfect center of a venn diagram for some of these things it's like okay not athletic not necessarily popular Eh, you're in band but it's not your thing yeah i I like the leftovers group. Yeah. Well, you should write a movie and call it the leftovers. Ah, absolutely. We will get to work on that. Yeah. More social interaction with food references than the titles. I I like this. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that, that sandwich scene struck a chord in my heart with, uh, Ali Sheedy doing all the disgusting things. I was like, people paid me five bucks to do that. She's just, you ate some, you ate some pretty yucky concoctions, mostly food stuff. Like not like, not like couldn't put you in the hospital. Like you didn't eat like bleach or like Tide packets, but like, I mean, you know, TikTok is a scourge. Yeah. 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 TikTok is a scourge with that stuff. Back in our day, we're just mixing disgusting stuff and I drank it or snorted a pixie stick. Don't do that kids. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But I think one of the interesting things that did bring them together is the struggle that like the American teenager has with their parents. Like, no matter who you are at this age, even I, I mean, I get along pretty good with my parents, but I mean, there's definitely moments of conflict and there's this frustration of who am I? I don't feel like anybody in this school gets me. And at the time you feel like you're alone, but I'm pretty sure as I've gotten older, you'd look around, more people felt that way than you realized. And it would have been nice to have known at the time, but... Uh, just general frustration with your parents and not knowing where you fit into the system and that uncertainty of perhaps a little bit of building pressure of where is my life going to go? You can see that in each of these five characters. Definitely. Yeah. And I thought that was pretty clear um, towards the end of the movie. I think it was Andrew that said, are we going to just end up like our parents? And that, 
that rang true. Like that just hit a chord for me because there are so many people like that in the community I grew up in that their their parents went to the same high school and and they went to the high school and they're just kind of following in the same line as as their parents. Yeah, Claire says something interesting in it. I I don't know if it rings true. I'd love to talk to some of the people that were in one of those popular cliques and if they really felt this different type of pressure. But Clara says, you don't understand. I can't say no. And she's talking about all the pressure to stay popular and her friends and things like that. That just wasn't something that ever occurred to me. But maybe, like we said, because we fell, fell in this kind of leftover category, there was no real pressure of acting one specific way there was it would be difficult to define our group but for the preps jocks whatever i i do wonder if that rings true i'd love to have someone you know who who wasn't russell keaton were you popular were you were you the popular kid no i was really like that i was definitely not in the popular group and like like russell said like i had some popular friends and i had some like athletic friends and some band friends and you know, like the smart kids, and it was just like it was that oddball group. Huh. Well, I mean, popular people. We attract each other. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you were popular, please write to us and tell us about your peer pressure because we have no idea. Then please write another letter explaining how somebody who's popular who's not a nerd ended up like digging this show. So uh, I would like to know that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Uh, Many people feel like the original prototype for this is uh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, who's been shortlisted like twice. And now I'm particularly curious to get into it. It's kind of got a Broadway like formula where it's very few room changes. It's arguing, it's shouting, it's divulging personal secrets and revelations and confronting each other kind of in a drama setting. And another one was called uh, The Big Chill. And Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Ebert wrote this off perhaps unfairly as just calling it The Little Chill. And that's another movie where people, in that case, they're looking back on their life and sharing things with each other. And another one would be William Friedkin's Boys in the Band, 1970. So I haven't seen any of these movies. I'm a terrible host of a movie podcast. My Dinner with Andre? I mean, that's clearly an influence for The Breakfast Club as well. So, yeah, exactly. I'm honestly really curious to dive into these because I might be the kid who walks around sitting there saying, like, there's this really new... uh really new band you know and like they're singing the song that ends up being a cover of a classic rock song and it's like this is really new stuff man so for me it was really refreshing but i still like the teenage perspective it's such an interesting time in your life so i i guess it has been done before but i still really like it and i felt like it it was my introduction to this kind of uh cross-pollinating of all these different backgrounds and walks of life so I guess it did resonate with me. It has actually changed the way that I view things because I mean, I'll be honest with you, I was so quite honestly resentful of some people who could be judgmental, whether it be, you know, not all athletic people would be this way, but there'd be people who like kind of had a major chip on their shoulder, like every they were above everybody else. And I became extremely resentful of people like that or people who were maybe the class president, you know, or the prom queen kind of thing. And they would treat people very, very badly. And it's one of those things where you, you start to just harbor this label to yourself and you start to resent people like that and i remember i was in like a college calculus class in summer and i bumped into somebody who was like "Ugh, this guy's popular i have no idea i don't even want to sit like near him and he came up to sat next to me and you know what 
it was really nice to me and it really caught me off guard and it was one of those things where like i did watch the breakfast club again that summer it's like huh i guess i'm guilty of doing that myself you know it, it works the other direction uh, one thing i do want to talk about though is i think that there's another character who i didn't pay as much attention to when i was younger but now that i find more interesting as i'm getting older is paul gleason's character of richard dick vernon and uh he's he's such a good antagonist character like he's like a real villain of like you know but he's more complicated than i like i just saw like bold face like authoritarian like guy on a power trip and being completely unreasonable and talking down to everybody which he is he's all of that but there's there's layers under there that i didn't necessarily see in the past as i'm studying it more and taking more time to drill through it now one of the things that makes me like it even more is uh is that uh he's a good villain character but he's also incredibly insecure like he's out of touch and losing touch more each year uh you know they're starting to make fun of what he's wearing and he just can't take being made fun of he even bold face out like says i will not be made a fool of and it's like it's the opposite of what you're talking about chad he's not he's not maturing gracefully it's defiant there's anger in it and there's like criticism of like i stay awake at night thinking these kids are going to run the country someday as if they're not going to continue to develop and and develop themselves and stuff like that there's there's a lot of uh anger in this character i don't know keaton do you like this do you like this villain i guess i like him for this movie i think he he plays the villain well there and and it goes well with with bender's vibe but they kind of like battle each other in a good way i think i think that works yeah, I didn't, I didn't ever really have a teacher or a principal that was this aggressive. So this was like, to me, this was just like, you know, the jerk teacher that is is in deten- is running detention so that he can yell at everybody. I think they've had to dial it down to people who are like this, because if you fake hit a kid, you yeah. know, you, you're going to get into trouble. So I think this is the 1980s version of people who I, I feel like I saw or whatever, like, the, again, like the power trip. Like, I'm in charge. And it's going to be that way because I, I, one of my fa- least favorite things you ever encounter is like, because I say so. I definitely had a teacher in the 2000s put his hands on me. He made a mistake. He mistook me for another kid that had a bowl cut that he'd yelled at yesterday. But <laughs> definitely put his hands on me. Yeah, the- Andrew Hedgepeth? Yeah, uh, probably. Probably. Okay, there were good. many That's of fitting. us. There were probably many of us, and he did not want to hear, you have the wrong bull cut, sir. But yeah, the, I kind of found him sympathetic. It, I felt a little bad for Vice Principal Vernon, because he obviously cares, and he's spending time lamenting with Carl about these kids, and I disagree with Carl that children and teenagers have not, or have, haven't changed. I think they have. There's definitely a different respect level that's coming from parents. We see it with a teacher crisis where kids are talking back, throwing things. It's different. But I think Principal Vernon, it's just one of those things, the only tool in his tool bag is a hammer. And he's ill-equipped to deal with a problem. He wants to fix Bender, but he doesn't have the right tools. So he's just hammering with a nail as I get deep thunder this is not dramatic effect it's just uh it's very angry outside my house that was ominous dude do you want to do that again i wish it had been far more dramatic what i had said or impactful 
<laughs> no, that was that was weak compared to that. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like you should have been saying, like, you shall not pass. Yes, or something <laughs> from Clue. It's like the body. <laughs> Sorry. Maybe that needs to stay in. That was a pretty good aside. So, um, no, it's good. I, I think without him, Bender doesn't become as likable. Bender's a jerk. He is a, he's a total jerk. He's like he 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 softens up and becomes vulnerable at moment, but like he snaps out of it, and like that defense mechanism of being an uh, you know a jerk goes up. So unless you have a bigger jerk, of like you know as, as the authoritarian figure, you know you're not going to come around to like John, this and that's why like you like John. Well, you you end up liking them all, and that's the point. Like, oh, you, you, no, like, I don't. Well, like Claire, Claire's Claire's a character who normally, like, I don't, like I said, I would have judgmental like labels against this, but I mean, um, you you come to like her, you come to realize that some of the things people are criticizing her for and are saying about her aren't nest nest. I mean, it's not her fault. Her pet, her dad has money. I mean, like, she didn't choose that. And there's a there's a certain like label that comes with that. And I mean, some of it she does to herself, but I mean, other parts of it, you know. Are not under her control and so no i mean like yeah i end up liking claire and john and i mean uh allison who doesn't i mean just she's she's hilarious i think she's the funniest one of the bunch and but uh, like i said it's just one of those things where you end up liking them all don't don't you keaton oh yeah definitely i mean when they start to when they start to become friends with each other then you you can start to like see how how maybe they would represent people in your own friend group or some similarities in that way. And definitely you, you start to see the good in them, but I could see Chad's point of not really ever getting super fond of Bender. I don't think I ever <laughs> reached that point either. They make you commiserate enough with them. That it's just like, dang, this guy just needs a hug. Like, I mean, this is definitely the result of like a bad home situation and, uh, you know, getting cigarette cigar burns on your arm and you know abuse and stuff like that i admittedly was like andrew when the first time i was watching this going like he's making it up i can't take anything he says seriously because he's so preposterous and over the top with everything else he does why would this be true and i, I it was kind of a cool moment where they called him on it it's like oh i i was in my own head as a viewer was doing the same thing so it's like john hughes as a writer thought of that so that's good writing i uh, at least it's in tune with what i was thinking so um yeah they just they made the mistake with him and Claire. Like, he starts detention with Claire assaulting her. Like, it's straight up no, that's fair. sexual that's assault. Fair. And then they they kiss in the end. They get together. It's like this. Molly Ringwald has said this film, she went to show it to her 10-year-old daughter. And she's like, oh, oh, this isn't great. Like, we're rewarding John for this behavior. And yeah, he, he has sympathies. Uh, of his home life but man i yeah he's he's a hard one for me to root for yeah he's got the classic ad lib scene at the end i love that judd nelson raised his fist and no one told him to do that and it just becomes this iconic movie shot but the character himself he's just so disruptive i i'm on the opposite side of this ross i i am all the way on Team Vernon of like this kid's a problem and we're gonna we've got to do something to keep him out of jail. Like you hear his family background, it's like oh no, this kid may be on the same cycle. I hope the cycle is broken, but uh, something's got to change. 
Wow. Yeah. So this is why it's changing for you as you're watching this. And I still see the uh, this is somebody who needs to be heard and and has some decent friends and family put around him and stuff. So, I mean, I don't know. I guess I can't. I guess I sympathize with him too much. And uh, he does enough things that are good, like whether it's taking the blame for everybody else or he does have vulnerable moments. But again, he uh, he definitely is definitely his behavior. I would have liked to have seen him take some of that back what you're saying he's putting the bad boy act on but i think if i were to read adjust what you're talking about because it would, doesn't age well in the me too eras you're right he's he's bullying her and he and she comes around to it which is that does send a bad message so i just wish that he would get called on it and some conversation you know there's like there's like another hour of content almost on this that got cut i'd like to think that it was there but given when it was written probably not but no <laughs> um um uh, yeah. I don't know. Keaton, is there anything for you that hasn't aged well, like you, like here in 2022? Yeah, I had this, the same thought as Chad about Bender and, and Claire. But I think the, and I don't want to offend you, Russell, I know you like Allison's character here a lot. But uh, I was I was thinking as I was watching that, watching it this time that she didn't really come off as like the the fun, crazy girl you know, that is kind of quirky and like you, you laugh along with, it looked more to me like she was truly crazy and had some, some stuff she needed help with, which I guess they all do. But, uh, no, I loved Allison's. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. She's, 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 uh, covering up something underneath for sure. I, yeah, but I'm kind of on team Keaton here of, especially when she starts lying about her therapist and he's married and she's like, I'm an infomaniac and everything else. It's like, why are you just screwing with people? Like we never find out why she's there, by the way, which I love because she just wanted to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the big thing post Columbine, there's a huge storyline here. That's the problem is Brian bringing the gun to school to kill himself. That. That doesn't happen anymore. When someone brings a gun to school, it's for a school shooting. And maybe at the end, it's for their own suicide. But it's like, oh, man, why the 80s were just a different time. But that's that's a biggie here where kids kids now are going through shelter in place different than what we went through of hide under your desk from earthquake. It's lock the classroom doors for school shooter. Yeah, that's true. I think that it helps when, it, as as they introduce it, it, it's also with the side of like I was going to sh- kill myself. Yeah, like, definitely. I, it, it, like so, like I don't, I never, my head didn't go to that. But maybe in today's times, someone could take it that way. But it was just introduced in such a individual little, you know, internal moment where I just didn't, I didn't go with that. But that's an interesting take. One that didn't work sit well with me was. And again, I, I tend to like the outcast and the alternative people. I did not like how uh, Allison was given a makeover. Mm, and yeah. she was made to change who she was to be more like Claire. And then with new packaging, she could be popular, pretty, and she could have it all, so to speak. As if, 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 that popular, if, if this movie didn't already explain you, that is not that fulfilling. And then Andrew likes her for it, as opposed to Andrew kind of like, you know, I'm not supposed to like this offbeat character. It's one thing if she just gets a makeover, but then puts her face back on. Or it would be funnier if Allison gave Claire 
the same makeover for her. And they they traded. There would be something like, we're going to try each other's shoes out or whatever and laugh at this and kind of, it's funny. And then they go put their face back on and they are who they are. And Andrew likes Allison for Allison. And that would be better. That's a much better change than just putting her in the tropey white dress and, mm-hmm. you know, seeing not another teen movie where it's the same thing of the nerdy girl with glasses takes out her ponytail and takes off her glasses and then she's just this smoke show. It's like, come on now. That is such an 80s trope, though. Yes. And it was the 80s. And Ali Sheedy and and Molly Ringwald both said to John Hughes, like, I don't like this. So in the end, they, that had to stay because, like, the ugly duckling, you know, becomes a swan thing was just such a thing at the time you had to contend with. I don't believe that you would have done this in the 90s or O's. In fact, it might have been the opposite where you, uh, you know, especially in the 90s, I think I think Claire would have loosened up and uh, and uh, put the put a torn jean jacket on and some and some dark eyeliner might have gone the other direction in the 90s but i think i think here in today's time just being respectful of who they are and again walking in each other's shoes is one thing but to change like how andrew perceives her and now she has value all that stuff so um to me actually this is probably my number one thing i i don't think has aged as well and even in doing so i still love this movie it's, I'm able to overlook all of these things that we've just gone on. Like I don't know how many minutes this is of things that didn't age well, but um, yeah, you're certainly uh, allowed. I mean, it's still an enjoyable movie. Yeah, and and it has '80s super '80s mu- music montages as well, which is um, not always up my alley, but um, I'm I'm able to overlook those too. Cast though, I mean, Keaton, what are some of the what what is it that these, this acts, this has a lot of the actors. There's no one major actor. It's an ensemble cast here. What did they got so right about this cast to you in terms of the actors playing these characters? I think probably the way they play off each other for me is the best. Maybe it's just the way that they, they kind of blend as a group. And I believe they were all at different ages too, right? Which is interesting. Some of them were actually high schoolers while some of them were older. So that's... yeah kind of interesting how for the different roles they had to find somebody that that fit that role whether they were at the age or not yeah judd nelson was 25 molly ringwald was 16 uh so was Ami- anthony michael hall yep yeah. emilio estevez was 23 and ali sheedy was 23 i'm normally not a fan of casting 25 year olds as 16 year olds but Judd Nelson is very good in this role, so he I, is. I'll let it slide. And I think it's believable, and I think it's an understood expectation. Like, this dude's been held back at least once. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I didn't think about it that way. Um, yeah, when I, I was actually watching this with my wife, and I think it was her first time watching it all the way through, and she said that at the beginning. She was like, is he just the older kid that hasn't graduated yet? <laughs> yeah. oh, okay, then it works. Then it may, you're you're putting it to work for itself. Then I did not perceive that big of an age difference between uh, Emilio and Nally versus Molly and Anthony Michael Hall. But um, yeah, it uh, it all seems to work for me. It helps that Anthony Michael Hall looks a little bit smaller because he's gonna play this character who's like nebbish and kind of small and nerdy and kind of stuff like that. Like he's skinny, so getting somebody who's deliberately younger and looks like he's younger than everybody else fits the character's casting really well it's kind of funny though he hit like a growth spurt in this and um by the time they were done filming he ends up being taller 
than than Judd Nelson. So um, there are inconsistencies in height. I'd never noticed it before, but once you're told, then you can't stop seeing it. That's awesome. That's like such a, a small time frame that they could have lined that up. It's the second time it happened to him too, because I read that it also happened in Vacation, because he's he's Russell from Vacation and uh, Chevy Chase Vacation, and it happens there too. So uh, Anthony Michael Hall sure picks some strange times to grow tall. So you got to do it sometime. Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall actually end up dating in this movie. I thought that was an interesting thing. So uh, on screen and off screen. So. Yeah, two back to back movies will do that for you. Uh, Nicholas Cage was considered for the role of John Bender, and I hate this. I really <laughs> oh, I love that. Uh, yeah. It's, it's better than John Cusack. He was also considered. It's not better than John Cusack. John Cusack's too nice of a guy for Bender, which is what John Hughes said. But um, yeah, Jim Carrey auditioned for the role, too, by the way. Yeah, Michael J. Fox, wow. Tom Cruise, Rob Lowe. Yeah. I think Rob Lowe. Yeah, I don't know. That's, that's to me, is the hardest one of all of those because he's always so cleaned up and stuff like that. I can't picture him doing this. I mean, he's a good jerk, but like he's your class president popular guy, goober jerk. So. Yeah, that's true. Judd Nelson, though, stayed in character off camera, which must have been <laughs> excruciating to be around with method acting of playing such a abrasive character and he he did bully molly ringwald and made fun of her for having a in real life her her blind musician father and uh you know would hit on other hot button issues and stuff like that john hughes got mad at him and threatened to fire him and uh you know paul gleason who plays uh uh mr vernon ends up defending him and saying like he's a good actor and he's just trying to get into character and stuff like that but uh, uh there's a volatility between judd nelson and john hughes there was going to be a sequel as i mentioned earlier but perhaps one of the reasons it didn't happen was the volatile nature between these two. It's, it's really, Bender's kind of the main, if the main, it's not, and there's no one main character, but if there is one, this Judd Nelson is the guy who stirs the drink, so. Judd Nelson doesn't speak so negatively of John Hughes, though. He's actually pretty, pretty flattering. Yeah, I mean, same for Molly Ringwald for the most part, but another one that had a falling out with John Hughes, I mean, John she was kind of John Hughes's muse for a while. We see that with Sixteen Candles, Breakfast Club, and she went on to do other things. And there was resentment. So John Hughes uh, not not getting along with his stars. Well, Judd, I, I get sorry. John Hughes was somebody just kept going back to the same people over and over again. Like he was reusing his actors in his movies, and he took it hard when Anthony Michael Hall and Molly Ringwald after this, didn't want to keep doing these teenage things. They wanted to take more adult roles to help their career out, which it didn't. Um, they should have just, they should have driven that teenage car as long as you can. So, um, so um, it didn't pay off for them, but John took it really hard. It's just one of those people who's like, I thought you guys were my friends. Like, when you read it, like, uh, you feel kind of bad for John Hughes. But as a result of it, John Hughes turns over another chapter of his career where he's no longer writing, like, teenage parts. He goes on to do things like planes, trains, and automobiles, and um, and Uncle Buck, and other like he shifts his focus, and he's really good at those other things too, really good. So John Hughes, we lose him too soon. He's awesome. I think that there's like this void in Hollywood after he goes of like he produces this kind of movie. This one's rated R, but he's capable of hitting the touching, the, the laughter, the feels, and doing everything under the umbrella really well, and usually not necessarily having to like be a hard R to do it. And it's just one of those things where he plays such a nice balance. And even here where he steps into the R-rated territory, like 
it's just so substantive and so good. So I'm, I've, John Hughes, I, I, I love all of his stuff. So for me, it's just one of those things where you sit there and read. It's just like, ah, why do you guys walk away from the gravy boat? He did do the 1994 masterpiece, Baby's Day Out, which has been mentioned so many times on this podcast. I, it's, I think this is. I think what happens is people in Hollywood become stale, and then you end up taking jobs you don't want to. And I don't see what happened with that. To your point, <laughs> but um, I mean. I've heard other people talking about like once you get to a certain age or once your career gets to a certain point, then people are just kind of done with you, particularly in the comedy realm. So that's my excuse for Baby's Day Out. So um, <laughs> the, even the likes of Stanley Kubrick thought the acting here was so strong. Like he loved Anthony Michael Hall's performance in this one. He uh, perhaps uh, flatteringly said like he's going to be like a young Spencer Tracy. Like he wanted him to do uh, lead role in Private Joker and his upcoming film for Full Metal Jacket. Uh, I think which uh, he should have made that happen for himself because again Anthony Michael Hall is a strange character he has such a hot 80s and then it just falls apart for him feel bad for the guy so Jodie Foster and Robin Wright considered to play Claire I don't like this also Laura Dern tried out for both female parts and didn't get either of them so some other fun alternate castings out there I'll admit I've become so I love this cast so much once you start throwing out even good names I start to get really defensive like no don't touch it I'll be honest, I, Robin Wright in this role, I'm intrigued. I kind of want to see it. I know you're defensive about the Claire role and Molly Ringwald was perfect, but Robin Wright strikes me as she could do it. I think she's got that the buttercup sass, so I, I'm intrigued. We almost got Rick Moranis in the janitor role. I thought that was interesting. I want that a lot. The I do too. The creative differences. What differences do you have over... You're the janitor of the school. Like, it's a small part. Come on, Rick. Whatever the differences were, just do it. Yeah, we got John Capellas on this one. There's nothing wrong inherently with John Capellas, but no. I want Rick Moranis being... Apparently, he was reinterpreting this character as a Russian immigrant. And, uh, <laughs> of and, course and, he was. And and the producer... And he grew a beard for it, too. Like, like he was getting into it. And... Um, and the producer, Ned Tannen, hated it, so vehemently opposed Moranis's uh, portrayal of this character. He's just has written to be such strong reactions of it. He insisted that uh, he, he be removed. And so uh, John Hughes, as the director, was going to, like, he's pretty giving. And you'll read in these actors, like, um, like they like him because they let, he gives them freedom to explore. He will sometimes get them to reconsider. It's like, I don't think this is right for the character. This is the problem. What would you do about that? as opposed to just bold face like again that's not what i need again so uh john's pretty workable but this in this case the producer stepped in and said i will not have that rick moranis fellow on this movie he's out of here it almost sounds like he was trying to sabotage it like this is something producers level where you're trying to make something so bad but still make money like did he go in on a bet of hey can you can you just play a random Russian immigrant that makes no sense in John Hughes's movie and get away with it? Turns out, nope. No, you can't. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I, um, I'd still I, watch although, it. Although they still planted him as the class member of the year in the hallway, if you caught that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I alluded to my, my liking of John Hughes's hitting the the heartfelt moments the comedy and just hitting great balance and writing good characters and excellent dialogue and he does this across all of his movies in my opinion except for baby stay out um so uh keaton what do you like about john hughes and like he's the writer and the director here 
Yeah, I mean, I wasn't as familiar with John Hughes being that I, I wasn't born until 94, so a lot of these movies I just hadn't seen or didn't think I had seen. But then once I kind of started looking at his list of movies, there were some of the classics that I remember growing up, like Beethoven and 101 Dalmatians, the Home Alone movies. Those were so good, but probably a little bit different style of, of movie for him. Like you said, that he, he kind of changed as he was working through his career. But yeah, I liked it. I liked that he he kind of took the the approach with with the Breakfast Club to let the actors do a lot of ad libbing and and trying to let them riff off each other in the scene. And I thought that played really well here. He has such a strange career, like the '80s, especially the early to mid '80s. They're teen focused, but they're they're kind of pervy i guess in a little ways it's like something it was was the 80s though i mean yes that's true it's true but some of the things that he writes well 16 candles there's a uh there's a distinct underwear scene weird science the entire movie is is built around building a woman but then he transitions it's hilarious it it is It's, it's funny but then he he kind of transitions off of that into much more family-friendly stuff with Uncle Buck, Christmas Vacation, Home Alone, Beethoven, all the movies that Keaton was mentioning, Dennis the Menace. I, I think John Hughes is just really interesting that he had a hard time getting this made. Like, his name didn't carry the clout that you would think it would. They didn't want him to direct it. And uh, he had to prove to them that this was a low-cost, one-location kind of endeavor. And, you know, again, $1 million is a meager budget but he totally hits the box office and can, after this, he has, <laughs> he has freedom to do things that he wants to do. And it's unfortunate for him that his, the brat pack is what it's known as, isn't there for him once he's received such uh, stellar success. So kind of, kind of funny and ironic how that works out. Yeah, they didn't, they, the, Universal said nobody wants this. To your point, Chad, they said there's no scenes with boobs and uh, like naked boobs and party scenes and guys drinking beer and doing keg stands. This is what a teenage picture is in the 80s, they explained to them. Right. And John Hughes and John Hughes was sitting there going like, I think you're grossly underestimating the audience and the and, and what teenagers are. And for that, he gets many, many points. So we, we kind of railed on some of these things that you wouldn't do today, but he advanced what a teen movie is so much. I mean, there was there was a notion from somebody to, like, they all sneak out and go look through the girls' locker room as if anybody would be there on a Saturday. So luckily they <laughs> cut that. And the, those cheap, those really cheap moments like that are are not here in this movie. There is a crotch shot up a, a Molly Ringwald skirt at some point, but it is within what Bender's character would do in that moment, even though Molly Ringwald was super embarrassed and didn't want to do it. Yeah, and... This should inform you as a director, like when you can't actually shoot these things, it's a body double for most of these things. Like when Bender is kind of groping at Claire, it's a body double. Most of those close in shots are someone else because this is she was 16, as we've pointed out. So maybe if you have to go get an adult to do these things, maybe don't shoot those shots. But I don't know. That's just me. I mean, what Bender did is still that's within the character you just wouldn't i'm assuming you just remove the shot though yeah that's fine yeah okay well we know it won't be chad's shot of the movie then 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, it is it is distinctly 80s. The carrying around a naked picture, like a cut-out naked picture of a girl from a magazine. That's, I don't, well, yeah, cell phones are a thing, thing now. But even in our high school, in our junior high, that wasn't really a thing. No, no kid was just carrying around a naked picture of a girl in his wallet, I don't think. I remember some kids got sent home for like wearing a Corona beer t-shirt that had like scantily clad women on it. But I mean, it's a beer t-shirt too. So, right. I mean, <laughs> he, was, he was pretty screwed from the beginning. Um, but uh, I'd like that John Hughes treated this like a play. They shot it in sequence. I was, I'm not an actor, but I just kind of find that to be an interesting way of sorting it out for everybody on the crew uh, and organizing it. Not always common. And they also rehearsed the movie as if it were a play, and they ran through it multiple times. Again, it's small scale, like a, like a Broadway play. And so in order to help prepare and to get the, the vibe for this, that's how they did it. They, they kind of ran through it three, three or four different times. And uh, it's interesting, too, that, um, again, this has to go out of John Hughes's territory into the R-rating territory, which isn't really where he lives, but it's done with such authenticity in the dialogue. It, this feels like what teenagers like talk. They make fun of each other. I think they made a really good point of like, you're screwed either way. Either you're a prude if you haven't had sex, or you're a virgin and you're uptight. And sorry, sorry, uh, you're yeah, you're a prude or you're a slut. And like that that weird double standard of there's you'll be judged no matter what is is in there, and the social boxes that they're they're shattering of like the labels and stuff in this. To me, that that seems so not eighties. It so I think it's doing far more new things that that seems like on par with like what you would do today personally like that seems like 30 years ahead of its time yeah no i i agree that i think them kind of coming us as the viewers seeing them all kind of come out of their pre-described box i feel like that is ahead of the times because that's the kind of stuff that you know people now with everybody's awareness to mental health and everything it's that's the kind of stuff I think that definitely gets included now that probably wasn't thought about as much in the past. I like that they had regret for, like, he bullied a kid and it bothered him. I like that there was a kid who was contemplating suicide and that there was somebody who was just acting so ridiculously strangely to everybody else, but under there there was somebody really hurting. And this is just such not an 80s thing to do. It's not even a 90s thing to do, really, like, to... to dive into all the vulnerable parts of those characters like that. Really well-constructed characters. Yeah, I mean, I think coming off of particularly 70s, late 70s, yeah, there's a lot of talk of losing virginity, and there's emphasis of that. And the 70s were just an insanely horny period of time. But but here, the, the kids, they're not stupid and yeah, we're we're trying to put them in some form of stereotype, and they still remain mostly in that box by the end of the movie, with the exception of I would say Ali Sheedy. But they're they're given room to talk, and it's not ridiculous, contrived dialogue. That when I think of the '70s, I think of just really bad dialogue for the most part <laughs> of this age group. You know the, what? What slang hip terms are children using nowadays? And then someone writes that down. It's like someone actually had a conversation with teenagers and did a lot of research before they 
they wrote before John wrote this movie. Yeah, it seems timeless in that way. Even the wardrobe choices like are neutral enough that they don't seem ridiculously dated. Like Claire could have easily, easily, like been like over the top eighties, especially by eighty five. Oh yeah, we're starting. We're starting to enter the 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 absurd. The like, big hair phase. Yeah. It's not totally 88 yet, but like it, 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 we have left the 70s and we are in the 80s here fully. And even at that point, like we, I, I think having gone through this for a couple of decades, Claire still seems like she would be popular at each point, especially as she's portraying the character. So they, they handled that tastefully. Brian somehow is just neutral enough that he can remain nerdy no matter which era it is. And, yeah, um, they don't go over the top like Revenge of the Nerds. Yeah, I, I mean... It's a little bit James Deany to just, you know, go for the like, leather jacket, you know, like in the in the boots and stuff like that. But I mean, Judd Nelson's like ill-fitting character, like uh, clothes and stuff like that actually becomes super trendy in the following decade right. or, or two even. So, I mean, uh, somehow they were ahead of their time on their wardrobe choices with that. So and even Ali Sheedy, I, I wasn't aware of this being a style choice as much in the 80s. I thought this, I thought this comes along later. So it's amazing how not dated this 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 goes on to be. John Hughes said his biggest regret was like doing the the marijuana scene, like breaking the glass effect on the door and stuff like that, and going too silly with some of the music stuff. But without that relief, I'm I'm not Mr. Eighties music montage stuff. But without those relief moments, is it too serious? Like Keaton, you mentioned early on, like you liked the the, the big laughs that they're they're not necessarily a lot of laughs, but they're big laughs. That balance of funny and serious for you. Yeah, and it kind of is a you know a, a slower movie, being that they're in one location the whole time, and you you almost get the vibe that this is a long day. It's the, it's eight hours in the library, and like how are we going to fill this time? And I I thought that was interesting. Just you kind of get that that feeling early on, but I like how they you get to see them move around and kind of get into their shenanigans, as you would expect. Uh, in addition to some of the other regrets that you were mentioning, Molly Greenwald said that uh, she does not like the dance scene uh, very much, but I think it's actually pretty fun. Uh, originally, she was the only one supposed to dance, and they ended up, she didn't feel comfortable with it, so that everybody in the cast danced uh, with her, which is way better. Uh, I feel like that makes you look less eccentric than just uncontrollably dancing on your own. <laughs> so, Well, it's not just that she was too embarrassed. It says she said she was too bad at it. And that Ali Sheedy was the best dancer of any of them. Well, this comes from a bad dancer, but I think Molly Ringwald's dance moves look good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I didn't notice anything that's like, okay, she's out there doing the Charleston in the 80s. No, she it was fine. She's not doing the Elaine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Ali Sheedy is the best dancer, according to the cast, and I, I can confirm that. Although, Emilio goes full out Kevin Bacon footloose here. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, and uh, Molly Ringwald, other things that she could not do. The lipstick trick, not a real thing. That not is to burst so everybody's. disappointing. I know. Yeah, she she was a big heartthrob of the 80s, and uh, so sorry to demystify that for those at the time. So, yeah, as I mentioned, this was going to be a two-and-a-half-hour movie. This comes in, like, just a little over 90. I really, really want this other version. It's out there, and it still hasn't been delivered yet, but uh, I guess John John Hughes's wife, who, you know, she still survives. He's, he's no longer with us, but... Uh, she still has it. And Ali Sheedy revealed that and the, a director's cut does exist. But whereabouts and when 
why have we not gotten this movie? Because I don't know about you guys, but I could spend a, I could spend more time with these characters. I don't know about you, Keaton. Do you prefer it to be trimmed down and tight like this, or like are you so into the characters? I would love to know what is in the other hour of content. You know, like I, it to me that at the end of the movie, there's so many questions you still have, and so much you you want to see still. You want to see them go to school Monday and kind of see if they're still friends and how that all unfolds and if they go back to their groups or not. And I just wonder what is in that other hour that maybe could have alluded to that more, given us more of a, a backstory on any of this. I'm afraid they'd give us more that would potentially cause me to like a character less or be concerned. But I, I do kind of agree with you, Keaton, of maybe a backstory or a little bit more of Claire and Bender to just justify that what I kind of felt was a 90 degree turn okay this dude assaulted you a couple hours ago now he told a very sad story and it is very sad and now you're gonna kiss him like what there there needs to be extra steps there for me yeah some apologies that's what I was getting at right hey I'm sorry I called you that the apology cut yeah yeah. I just wonder what other things they got into, though. You know? It's, it's John Hughes, as so often does, he puts in the Chicago area. The Shermer, Illinois, is a fictitious suburb of Chicago. It still lives in the same world as uh, Weird Science and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, 16 Candles, Pretty in Pink, National Lampoon's Vacation. If this was made today, I think they connect these things a little bit more and put in a little more of those Easter eggs to let you know that this is all the same world. But I still like that John Hughes in the 80s is thinking about, I'm in my own little Chicago teenage world. Well, it was, it was filmed simultaneously with 16 Candles. You can see the sets and like portions where they messed up. So, yeah, where they're continuing over. Yeah, so we do have a little bit of that. But you're looking for like a huge cinematic universe. I do. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, it could be the principal or something like that. Like, actually, like, wouldn't it be funny if the principal was like Ferris Bueller's principal or something like that? Like, and he walks by and like talks to like, you know, Paul Gleason at some point. That'd be fun. That was so weird. He's not a principal. He's a dean. And I don't understand. Do high schools have deans somewhere else? No, no, they don't. <laughs> not to my knowledge, but in the John Hughes universe, it can, it can happen. <laughs> I guess. That just struck me today. I'm like, why, why are we avoiding this title? <laughs> that is funny. Um, but yeah, I would like a little, a little, a little few Easter eggs. Not, not full tilt interconnectivity. I don't need, um. Uh, or John Hughes just popping up in the back of Ferris Bueller's, like doing something disruptive in the class or something like that. Like just really small stuff. Yeah. Um, like when, like when Ben Stein's like doing Bueller, 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 and like have like have Judd Nelson make a little cameo in the back of the class and say something funny and have everybody laugh at him. Yeah, Bender. <laughs> yeah. This library is a, it's a school gymnasium. They didn't shoot it in the school library that they actually shot this in, the, which is actually in Maine North High School. These, these specifically for the film, uh, they got it closed down 1982 for when filming had begun. It, it later goes on to be like a uh, Illinois State Police building, like, but it's like a it's very brutal. It's very, but not in a good brutalist way. It's it's very prison like, which goes to feel like this, like, oppressive kind of teenage years kind of theme that they're in, where like there are no windows, in any of these shots. And they picked such a good building to, again, captive audience. It's not an actual prison movie, but there's there's moments of, like, bars, like wired glass, uh, them running through the hallways, hitting the bars. And so, again, it kind of reinforces that with the setting there. To me, 
this is the biggest school library in the world, I said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they go back to it, too, not to keep going back to Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but they use the interior scenes for Ferris Bueller, so there is some attempt of establishing this school. I, I did not realize. I need to watch the two closer together. I'm glad you're picking up on some of these things. That's, that's funny. Um, also... Bad architect note or uh, or bad uh, design note. Uh, these railings are totally like it's. I'm very aware. I'm looking at a set like the railings are like 12 inches apart. Like these are totally baby killing handrails. These are the least code compliant handrails oh. in the world. So. Oh. oh, you are a killjoy! Like who watches a movie and goes not to code? Don't be that guy. <laughs> I was just aware I was looking at a set because. <laughs> Maybe it's just an unsafe high school. I'm sure there were things that weren't code in our high school. And if your school is designed to be that crappy, why do you have this really interesting, nice, high art piece of sculpture in your library? That was the other thing that I had to ask. Like, this thing is all over in all the shots. They're hanging on it. They're cl- like they're clinging to it. It's like, it's kind of cool. Like, it's like, like the, 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 it is abstract. Like, they themselves are still forming themselves. And so I, I appreciated that. But I found myself going, it's like, what? crappy designed high school has such a nice statue and it's gigantic massive library inside this is you get the random rich donors that just donate weird stuff to the school and i could totally see that happening it's like well now we've got a weird statue to the library i guess to our our three times too big library yes yes (laughs) it's where students need to learn (laughs) yeah it has to be at least three times this big I talked a little bit about the wardrobe things, but there's also they, they they make little personalities moments in their cars that they drive up in and in the lunches that they have. And they just take a lot of attention to detail with everything they're wearing, like all of those things that they're doing. They did a really good job of constructing each character. Again, unlimited funds. I guess the stuff is pretty attainable. It's not like shot in the past or anything like that. But I just appreciate that level of detail. I think that's one of the things that makes it seem so timeless to me. Definitely. And like you said about their lunch, that kind of tells its own little story about whether they packed their own lunch or their parents packed a lunch for them or something like that. And the, it was, was that a Captain Crunch sandwich? It was. Did she bring the Captain Crunch and take the meat off? I, I couldn't understand how she put that together, but I loved she it. She did, yeah. <laughs> and and Ali Sheedy really ate a sugar and uh, white bread and butter and Captain Crunch sandwich, which sounds terrible. Well, she wanted the Captain Crunch for the crunching sound. Like, it wasn't crunchy enough just pouring sugar or pixie sticks or whatever she did. Yeah, that was all kinds of disgusting. Yeah. I mean, but it, it just, again, uh, Bender has to walk to school. He doesn't have a car. Like, you know, I mean, he doesn't have a lunch. And he ends up bullying and taking lunch because, you know, he looks at Brian and it's like, what are we having for lunch? And but at the end of the day, like you're you're getting it pretty well driven home. Like he doesn't have lunch. Nobody buys food for him at the house, and it's just one of those things of like he's being a jerk. But at the same time, you're like more than you're angry at what he's doing. You're like, oh, I'm sad for you. Hmm. Andrew was the better, I guess, because he could fight back. But Andrew clearly had the most lunch to steal from. Like take his his food. He's got the, the entire <laughs> grocer's bag. They do disarm. They do disarm John pretty big. Like he's not as tough as he comes off. He is decked pretty quickly by yes. Andrew. And also, there's a moment of like where Paul Gleason, like he does a good job as an actor 
seeming small. All of a sudden, the tough guy attitude is gone. He's intimidated. And this guy's way overstepping his boundaries as he's like just like lashing into him and he's taking the he's taking a whole generation's uh frustration out on on him it's uh he's not actually as tough as he wants to be he carries a switchblade knife he seems like he could do anything but at the end of the day he's not as tough as he actually is that's one of the things that makes you i think they disarm you and make him like him through these things and so they're all full of bad ideas it's it's ali sheedy's character allison right that says she's gonna run away to afghanistan it's like that's a terrible place did you just name the first place that started with a that came to mind because that's not where you want to go as a woman I think or that was the anyone point, though like it's somewhere terrible i just went away from here I, like not i'm literally going to go to afghanistan she might go to florida but like i mean she just wants away i mean the 80s romanticized it a little bit we have rambo that's dedicating <laughs> yeah that's true so <laughs> rambo 3 is very that does not age well yeah no, no, not at all. <laughs> yeah. Funny little moment there. John Hughes is actually Brian's dad when he comes up to pick him up, though, too. I love that. Mm-hmm. And we get some massive Coke product placement at lunchtime, too, I noticed. Oh, you have to. That's where you've got to get your million-dollar budget. <laughs> Chad, you can take the honors here. I, I, Or let me ask you, Keen. Do you like the music of this? I enjoyed it. I never knew that the classic song that don't you forget about me. I never knew that was from this movie or that they wrote it along with this movie. So that was, that was fun to realize because obviously I know the song as being a classic. And then when I heard it and it was like, Oh, there it is. John Hughes had a golden touch. Like a lot of his movies in the eighties led to like high charting songs for their movies. They don't have that so much anymore now, but he was a hit machine in terms of just placing hits in his movies. You know, when was the last, like, my heart will go on type phenomenon of a song? I can't think of something distinctly tied to a movie. I don't know. Linkin Park's New Divides for Transformers mm. was better than the movie for me. I don't know. But I'm just like, I'm a Linkin Park fan, so a song that didn't come out on an album was a pretty big deal in general. Like, it's like, yeah. So I don't know. That's just what comes to my mind. That's fair. But yeah, the, so many people turning and turning it down, Simple Minds had it be their number one song and it only came about because chrissy hind of the pretenders they offered it to her she turned it down and was like hey there's a band fronted by my husband named simple minds can i pass it on to them so serendipity for those guys it's it's been a money machine it i like the song i i like 80s music far more than russell russell cringes quite a bit but you said you tolerate this it works i i I tolerate it. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think probably its association with the Breakfast Club goes a long way for me. Like, okay. I'm not turning off the radio if the Simple Minds "Don't You Forget About Me" comes on. I, I can't get Bender's "Fist in the Air" freeze framed, and mm-hmm. walking into the sunset out of my head. Billy Idol turns it down. Brian Ferry turns it down also. So I mean, some other people. I like the Pretenders the best of all the people you just named. So um, I'm curious to know what would have been like had. The pretenders gotten a hold of it, but uh, no, I won't. I won't complain about this. It's uh, to me, it's not the icon. Like, um, it doesn't necessarily hold the weight of like, whoosh, like this is a, this triumphant moment that they, it's built up to be. But because of its context, it's it gains some extra bravado that it doesn't necessarily have to me as a listener. But um, I'm blaspheming all over this. People love this song, so it may not be my era for music, but I'll give it its props. The 80s riffic song, though, that they do in the library, 
I do not enjoy that. Oh, I love it. It's not freeze frame, but it reminds me a lot of freeze frame. Yeah. And then um, the, uh, I think it's We're Not Alone. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Robbie Benson, yeah. That is a synth-heavy song that, yes, I I see you holding your ears and just being, no! This is where, yeah, this is where my, actually, some of my, don't do that. Just, let's play Don't You Forget About Me for the fourth time. (laughs) (laughs) Give it the graduate treatment. It's like, we're going to play the same Simon and Garfunkel song seven times throughout this movie. (laughs) Should we pay him to write another song? Nah, same one's good. Um, let's give them some words. What do you say? Keaton, MVP. My MVP, I have to go with Anthony Michael Hall. I just, I love his role and his one-liners are just so funny. He just had me laughing the whole movie. And I think he plays a really good mediator in this group where he's kind of bridging the gap between the different people. Yeah, I like how feeble he is. I'm really frustrated with my parents too. You know, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> he does that sheepish kind of like, <laughs> am I allowed to talk kind of thing? How many times was that? Seven. Shut up. <laughs> Eight. <laughs> Chad, MVP. I went with Paul Gleason as Vice Principal Vernon. I, he's the driving force that's uniting these kids and his attempts to kind of corral them in. I, I think they're really hilarious. I, I'm getting concerned how much you like this character. Oh yeah, like yeah, he's. I, I'm a fan. I I am the old man that I'm just waiting for the tennis ball on my walker so I can shake it from my rocking chair on my front porch and say get off my lawn. Like I've got about 15 years before that happens, but I'm looking forward to it. You need the friendly janitor to come give you a talk and some perspective, Chad. I do not know. But, but I want the Rick Moranis Russian janitor to come talk to you. <laughs> Might be more convincing. Yeah. So it's hard not to go with John Hughes on this one, but I think Emilio Escovez is really good on this one. Like his vulnerable moments are excellent. And like he exhibits a really strong range from what is seemingly the hardest road to get there. He's that simple, dumb jock. So to give all that depth to... To what this meathead is doing and stuff like that he does a really good job of all of that so it's always stuck with me for some reason so Milo Escovez gets my MVP but I love this whole cast so um, best supporting actor not really many supporting characters in this one but if you had to do it that's just the way we do it Keaton yeah yeah it is tough to choose a supporting actor but Paul Gleason for me would be would be the pick there I thought he played that role really well yeah, and I'm less concerned for you to become like this extra grumpy old guy than I am, Chad. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Chad, best supporting. Went with Ron Dean, who's kind of the overbearing father of Andrew Clark. Like he's he's that sports dad that I think everybody knows at least the stereotype of, and he's trying to push what he thinks is best for his son. While it's not necessarily what Andrew wants, you can tell Andrew's just breaking under it. So I, I thought his brief interactions were pretty telling. Yeah, and with terrible advice and bad parenting, too. Like, yeah, screwed around, too. But you get caught. Don't get caught. Right. <laughs> that's not parenting advice. That's, that's dumb. Right. You're <laughs> raising a bully. He taped a kid's butt cheeks together. Don't do that. 
Yes. <laughs> so, um, I, I'm going to kind of double dip back into the main cast and go with Anthony Michael Hall here because um, for a lot of the reasons Keaton picked him for the MVP, he's just... He's also really impressive here. Uh, when I especially watch this movie, I sit there and wonder, it's like, man, I'm so frustrated he didn't make the jump from young actor to adult actor because I think he's, I think he has a really good balance of like funny. He is physically doing these motions of this character so well, and and he comes out of a shell so well, and he he along with Emilio Escobar, I think these guys just did an amazing job of transforming their character as they went through. So just. Uh, not really a supporting character, but it's a small cast. I'm going to bend the rules here. Hidden gem, Keaton. So my hidden gem's not a character, but the library set. I think that for me was the kind of the unspoken uh, gem of this, just because all of these things have to happen under one roof and in one location, and to create that atmosphere of this long day stuck in detention could have been. It could have been a scene or a set that just did not do justice or did not provide the opportunities for the kind of stuff that they got into. So I think that was the gem here. And it all started with the screw that just fell out. (laughs) Chad, hidden gem. John Capellas, he's the janitor Carl. I think he's fun and he's a little sleazy. He's extorting Bender pretty pretty quickly it's like yeah 50 bucks and then they're just drinking beers throwing beers back in the closet together so i don't know if this is in the director's cup there's a scene where he apparently they cut it out where he like basically i think somebody makes a comment to him and he gives a like two cents like summing up where everybody's going to be in five years and they're all like not flattering like declares like you know you're going to have like a bunch of plastic surgery done and like you know but your husband's going to be sleeping around with a bunch of other people and and you know things like that and like so like very not flattering like depressing like things i i got the fact that carl was more in touch with the kids and i'm glad they cut that because like he was more like a like hey they're gonna grow up uh we were pretty messed up too was kind of the message and you know we will find a way they will grow up kind of moment. It's just like, so that's incongruent with him. So I'm glad they cut that out though. My, my hidden gem along Keaton's line is going to be, I kind of alluded to it, the sculpture. I, I thought that was, they use it to personify these characters and how they interact with it and where they are as the relationship, how it's positioned between them. It, it's definitely something that they put a lot of thought into with how they shot it within the characters in there. So um, the way too nice sculpture and the way too big library just not gonna let that go no no it's my hidden gem it's my hidden gem Uh, recast if you had to recast somebody it's this gonna hurt keaton (laughs) yeah i don't know who would be the perfect person for this role but i think i would have recasted allison and it was probably just it probably wasn't the actress really it was probably just the character that she played but yeah i just didn't i never really uh, got to the point where I could I could kind of relate her to you know like the the quirky friend and it was to me it was more so I don't know maybe okay. maybe it was just yeah the character and not necessarily the way she played it I'm it gonna, might be go ahead Jack I'm gonna make this absolutely worse for Russell because she was my recast as well but I'm not even recasting the character I'm removing <sighs> it all together what I I did not think Allison Reynolds added anything to the story and the weird transition the end 
It's such a tired trope. The movie survives just fine without any contribution from Allison. So what? I'm not recasting. I am cutting. That's awful. Keaton would Keaton did his respectfully recasting. <laughs> You've got me. You got me hot and but I'm 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 gonna have to take a little bit of a walk. Yeah, come that's back. Fine. That's fine. Yeah. All right, I cut my this, ten minute. This, I cut my ten minute. Uh, th- just for people at home, I cut my ten minutes. Uh, I went outside and I yelled into the sky with my fist up in the air, and then I came back. I had to cool off. This is the Raiders of the Lost Ark discussion. Would they have gotten to the same place as characters if Allison didn't exist? Would Would the Ark of the Covenant have Would it have played out exactly the same? Erroneous. If Indiana Erroneous. Jones wasn't involved, and it would. <laughs> Wow, uh, I guess showing my cards. I mean, I'm, one of the reasons that, like, I mean, when I first saw this when I was in high school, I was very smitten with Molly Greenwald as much of the entire world of the '80s was at the time. So I, I definitely got it. So maybe I made extra, I, I maybe made extra leeway for what is an otherwise dislikable character to like her based on that. Although as I grew up over time, I, I've come to like Ali Sheedy and and Allison more and more and more. So. Um, uh, I don't know what that says about me as a person, but so uh, no, I'm not recasting Molly Ringwald. I'm not gonna. I'm going to take the coward's way out of this and go for the smallest character I can come up with and go with John Capellos. And I won't just do the Rick Moranis thing, even though I would. Uh, Jeff Bridges is around at this time, uh, and I think that he would be a fun janitor. Hmm. He he might do the angry janitor a little more. Jeff Bridges. Yeah. I see. Him He's the cracking. dude, man. Yeah. The dude abides. That's true. I think he could be the. La- I think he could be a good laid-back janitor. Is what I was thinking. Okay. All right. So he's he's in search of a rug to to replace the carpet. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and I want the beard too, by the way. All right. All right. So you're putting the dude. It's not just Jeff Bridges. You're getting the dude in here. You're getting a younger version of the dude. Okay. I mean, he's he's one. Obviously, he's many steps towards the Tron dude, but. Let's call him Tron Dude. All right. Best shot, Keaton. My favorite shot is kind of on, an ongoing shot was when they were running around the hallways trying to stay away from Vernon. Mm. I just thought that was kind of fun, like the moments where you'd see them run around the corner and then Vernon came out of the other hallway. And probably at that time, that wasn't an easy thing to do with the camera quality and everything. You know, now they have the rollers and gimbals and everything you can put a camera on to get a perfectly smooth shot. But that probably wasn't the case when they were filming it there. I mean, that stuff existed, but they had no money for this project. So to your point, yes, this was a low budget effort because for some reason they didn't trust John Hughes. If there was ever somebody who didn't need to be distrusted by this point in his career, I mean, it was him. Best shot, Chad. We know what it's not for you. What, what would it be? I just went with the iconic shot of John Bender's fist in the air while Don't You Forget About Me plays. I mean, that's that's the shot you think of when you think of The Breakfast Club. It is definitely the iconic moment, for sure. But I'm going to go with something that uh, really hit me, was the runner-up, perhaps, to that would just be when Andrew, Andrew tells how he got into the detention group. There's this pan shot, and it kind of runs in a semicircle. And he is 
transitioning and becoming more vulnerable and more emotional as he's talking about this. The tears are welling up in his eyes. And as he's talking about his dad's pressure that he puts on him and he gets upset with himself for bullying the weaker guy. We actually see it's a hard thing to sit there and really sympathize with a bully. Like, I mean, you did a really mean thing, but you can it's it's hard to sell the point of I regret what I did. And he truly sells it. And this camera work is really selling it, too. But the really brilliant thing about it is you're getting to see each of the friends faces as it's rotating while you're staying keeping him in the middle so you can see how everybody else is reacting to him he's very fore focused like like the first several times you're watching you're probably just paying attention to emilio at this point but how it how it engages with each of the other points in this poignant moment it's, it's really really good so that's mine good choice best scene keaton my favorite scene is when they're all smoking a joint and they're sitting around the circle and Brian is wearing those dark sunglasses. They're doing some imitations. I just, that's just hilarious for me. I love that. Yeah. Ali Sheedy's the only one who doesn't partake. I thought it was pretty funny when uh, Brian was like, do you believe this? Do you, do you approve of this? <laughs> uh, and he ends up being the most over the top character in there. So that is very funny. Chad, best scene. It's Vernon trying to prop open that broken door, man. It's uh, the moving that book rack in front of it, the launching of the chair earlier, and Bender is just full-on obnoxious during that entire time, taunting him. You're right. It's not going to work. Things like that. And it definitely did create a fire hazard. He's absolutely right. I did like that comment. It was more code talk. Yeah. Good job, Chad. Yeah. Yeah. OSHA. OSHA podcast right here. I would hate for the I would hate for there to be a fire to get out of here and the lives of the students were sacrificed because of the decision to put that book there. I just like how he turns around and me like, get this out of here. Like <laughs> he immediately turns it on the student. <laughs> like, I expect better of this than you. <laughs> um, uh, my best scene, I, I I'm gonna again I take this more as a drama than as a comedy, so I really like the quote unquote group therapy scene. That sit down moment where they're all sitting up on up in the upper tier of the library and they're talking about academic pressure whether claire is at sex or not uh what you know the abuse that john goes under um you know brian saying how conceited claire is i really like that moment of like you know she just genuinely steps in of like i wouldn't talk to you and like brian's like why not that's so messed up and he's like well i'm just being honest or whatever and she's like well basically your friends look up to me anyway and like i just love that like frustration that he has like you're just so conceited <laughs> like like this reality check of like that that sinking in and you can also see andrew like being one over too of just like i might have done that but now that you said that like that's what we would do no, that's messed up, and I don't want to do that. And that's like a changing moment for Andrew. So to your point, like, does, Al, does Claire need to be there? Yeah, I think I think that's one of those moments where, like, seeing Claire's brutal honesty of what he would be expected to do, he didn't like the way it sounded, and it didn't feel right to him. And that, that you, I'd like to think, come Monday, they waved each other in the hallway. <laughs> so, um, Oh, no, that didn't happen. You, you don't think so? Nope. Well, that's why it's an open end, so you can envision your own tomorrow if you need to, I guess. So, um, yeah, brilliantly open-ended. Best wardrobe makeup moment, of which, man, there are many fun ones to choose from on this one. How about you, Keaton? Bender's outfit, that was my favorite, in which I, I read that that was what he auditioned in, too. Mm-hmm. Yep. Kind of already, he was already kind of working on his method acting when he went 
for the audition. It's really, there's an interview of him on YouTube, like talking about the character. It's so funny to see. He's a very, very thoughtful, very intelligent uh, actor. And this is so not what he did. Like, I mean, you know, he grew up as a, you know, state government kid. And to be able to get to this point where he did this, I mean, he, he actually went to a high school and bought, bought some miners beers and like uh, with a you claiming his idea as a fake ID getting into the part like figuring out like he cracked what John Bender is and it was so not what he was so I actually am pretty impressed like how convincing he is like as Bender given that's just so not who he is that's a hard thing to try and be and uh, he nailed it although I'm not in favor of bullying cast members offset no the Jared Leto treatment yeah, exactly. So, Chad, best wardrobe or makeup moment for you? Yeah, same thing for me. I went with Bender's outfit. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go with uh, Allison before she gets the makeover. And um, I think I think she's just so quirky and off the wall and uh, fun. And, yeah, just there's, uh, there's so much personified in each of their wardrobes and stuff like that. But... Uh, something about her is just her character comes through most especially with hers she's shrouded in a mystery and you want to you want to know all that but she only shrouds you with further mystery of these funny tall tale stories so change one thing chad i i've touched on it a little bit i think i'm going to change there are a couple things that don't fit but i think the most shocking in 2022 is brian bringing the gun to school have it be some other type of pills or saying i got caught with a bottle of pills that i was going to take something like that huh wow i thought he was like uh i thought just a suicide risk alone was i, I don't know about the gravity of the moment there interesting i really I, thought you were going another direction that that how about you keaton yeah i think i would change the the relationships at the end of the movie and probably most specifically allison and andrew getting together at the end aside from the whole uh, makeover to for him to really accept her. That aside, I think that it was just kind of random and sudden, and that it didn't really add to the the conclusion at all, or how they would maybe go into the next week of school. And other than like their one kind of personal conversation where Andrew went and and talked with her on the side. I didn't see very many moments that they were kind of connecting personally or anything like that that would that would make me think that they should be together at the end. So that would that's what I would change. And the non-speaking roles, you could see her taking interest in him, in fairness. Like, you could see her, like, when he was talking or putting John back in his place, like, you could see some kind of, like, raised eyebrows of, like, oh, I, I get the appeal to I get the appeal of you. But to your point, when does he notice, like, I think I like this offbeat girl. Um, they go they go to get food together. I think the drinks together and they have a moment in the hallway. But it, I'll agree with you, Keaton. It, it wasn't enough to lead to of like, oh, you guys are an item now. Other than like, whoa, she combed your hair back and, and put blush on your face. You're pretty and that's all I need. Right. So, now you have um, value. Yeah, you've nailed mine as well. Like, of, I actually am okay with them just being friends at the end of this. And that goes for Bender and Claire, too. I don't think the female characters must become romantically involved with 
other people who are in the breakfast club together. So um, I think it actually strengthens it to make it deeper than just uh, infatuation. You know, if you want to save that for breakfast club too, brunch club, um, like that would be fine. Had he gotten his, although it was supposed to be five years in the future was when the sequel was supposed to occur. Like they were supposed to wait five years and come back and do it as older people. So very intriguing what would have gone through John's head for that. So, but yeah, I'm with you, Keaton. Like that's the part that to some degree bothers me to like let them be individuals and by lumping them into these relationships, one of them just being bad for you and the other and the other being like uh, not seeing who she really is. Like her identity got wiped away by putting her into another social box. I, that's that's mine. It's the 80s. <laughs> uh, best quote. Some great ones here. Keaton. Yeah, I think the my, my favorite was the classic uh, two hits, me hitting you and you hitting the floor. That's just, yep. <laughs> you know, I've, I've heard that one thrown around for years, and I didn't even realize that it was from this movie until rewatching it. Now, Chad, best quote. It's the dialogue between Brian and Claire. And Brian starts off, he says, so on Monday, what happens? Claire says, are we still friends, you mean? If we're friends now, that is? He's like, yeah. Do you want to know the truth? Yeah, I want to know the truth. I don't think so. And just the, the nihilist in me says, yeah, this is probably what happens it's just a temporary alliance it's not a lasting friendship interesting and i'm gonna say andrew says it at one point he says we're all pretty bizarre just some of us are better at hiding it that's all mm. there were some other good ones though i'm surprised i'm surprised i figured with you getting your angry old man syndrome going on here to death that you're gonna say don't mess with the bulls young man or you'll get the horns <laughs> I I do enjoy that. I enjoy the over-the-top machismo from Vernon. Also, Neo Maxi Zoon Dweeby is pretty good. The ad-libbed, what do you need a fake ID for so I can vote? Like, that's fantastic. <laughs> that is great. Keaton, we have come full circle. What would you give this movie on a five-star scale? I think I'd give it four stars. I enjoy it, and for an 80s movie, I think it was ahead of its time, but there's some stuff left open-ended that I'd like to see resolved or kind of pan out a little more. Chat. I went three, three and a half. Yeah, it's oh, right through my heart. It's fantastic dialogue, but you, even you guys, both had the same change, and I considered it pretty strongly. The relationships and how this is wrapped up is actually frustrating and kind of problematic. So if you don't stick the ending, I don't. Yeah, it's it's enjoyable. It's a good time. Great dialogue, classic dialogue, three and a half. I think our gripes are gripes with where we as a culture were at the times. That's, I mean, that's where the attitudes of women were, and it was reflected in the film. So as we go back 30 years later, it's remarkably ahead of its time in many ways, but in the other times, it's a, it's obviously stamped for when it was. So I don't know. I'm one of these people can find criticism and then still do this, but I'm giving it a five star. I love this movie. I've come back to it so many times, and so... No movie's perfect per se, but I think this hits that moment of like high rewatchability, just highly quotable cultural moment. Library of Congress. Can't believe this thing didn't like th this thing deserves award nominations to me and didn't get any of that. Probably too goofy and uh, packaged to younger audiences, but it speaks to teens and in such a way. It's few movies make me think this much uh, about 
like what it means and stuff like that. And so if it kind of, you watch it and makes you a better person, like when we did like 12 Angry Men or Mr. Nobody or something like that, there's something, there's something poignant in there that, that I find rewarding. So um, I am very frustrated by that grouping, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, anyway, to me, it's just one of those movies that I, I enjoy thinking about it. I enjoy returning to it. So I'm going five. So uh, I, I, I know so some people are going to be like, wait a minute. You said it had these problems. I does. Mm-hmm. And it's okay. Yeah. You can have a five-star five. problem movie. Like, it's fine. Five-star does not mean yeah. perfect, as you said. A five-star means you enjoy it at the highest capability. Yeah, this is in my top ten dramas. Yeah. All right. So, Chad, you want to help me pick a movie for next time? I would love to, man. It's noir time. Uh, Dark Passage from 1947. A man convicted of murdering his wife escapes from prison and works with a woman to try and prove his innocence. Option two. The Killers from 1946. Hitmen kill an unresisting victim, and the investigator Reardon uncovers a past involvement with a beautiful, deadly Kitty Collins and the mob. Option three, where the sidewalk ends. In 1950, Detective Sergeant Mark Dixon wants to be something his old man wasn't, a guy on the right side of the law. Will Dixon's vicious nature get the better of him in his investigations? These are all new to me, but I think I have to go with The Killers only because I like the song Mr. Brightside. It has nothing to do with the movie. I'll pick that Yeah, one. this is not the Ashton Kutcher one, by the way. Well, that's that's a positive right there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no Catherine Heigl, no Ashton Kutcher, so... Yes. Getting know. better all the time. Yeah, we've got, we're up to a full star and we haven't even seen it yet. <laughs> <laughs> Keaton, thank you so much for coming back, man. We appreciate it. We went long on this one, but uh, it's a good one. And to all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, thank you. We invite you to reach out to us. Subscribe. We want to hear from you, so subscribe, rate, and review on our iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Rate us and uh, review us. Those those ratings and reviews help other people find the show, and it helps spread the word and come up in searches better. So follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Like us on Facebook. Emails at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free. But we invite you to support our show at our Patreon page at www.patreon forward slash Retro Movie Roundtable. All contributions are much appreciated and will go towards making shows better for you, the listeners. Shout out to Mark for endorsing us and our show more recently. So thank you very much, Mark. And as always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Chad? Incredible. One of my worst performances of my career, and they never doubted it for a second. <laughs>